The text for Pastor John's sermon is Psalm 147, verses 1 through 11. If you're visiting and you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's usually a pew Bible in, in, the, front, in the pew in front of you there that you can use. Psalm 147, verses 1 through 11. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for he is gracious and his song of praise is seemly. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God upon the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rains for the earth. He makes grass grow upon the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens which cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Up until now in this series on the pleasures of God, we have focused on God's pleasure in himself and immediately in the the works of his hands. And we have not said much at all yet concerning the kinds of responses in the human heart that God might take pleasure in. We've talked about the fact that God has pleasure in His Son, that God has pleasure in the handiwork of His creation, that God has pleasure in the sovereignty and freedom of His providential control of the universe, that God has pleasure in His name and in the reputation of His glory, that God has pleasure in freely choosing a people for himself and in rejoicing over them to do them good. And last week we focused on the fact that God even delights to bruise his son because in that great act of judgment, the stormy betrothal of those two passions in God's heart got married. Namely, the passion to save sinners and the passion to glorify his name. All through the Old Testament, somehow interpenetrating and yet never seeming to be resolved until the cross showed how it could be. You may recall seven weeks ago at the beginning that I laid a foundation for this series taken from Henry Skugel's The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Do you remember this sentence? The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the objects of its love. Which simply means, if you love cheap, dirty, low, small things, that's the way your soul is. And we assumed that the same is true of God. The soul is measured by its flights, some low and others high. 
The heart is known by its delights, and pleasures never lie. God, too. God, too. And I think it has shown itself true again and again in the last seven weeks that God delights in those things. He loves those things that are of infinite value. He loves His Son. He loves His name. He loves His glory. He loves His freedom and sovereignty in the works of providence. He loves the handiwork in creation. He loves His freedom of grace manifest in election, in the purchase of His people, in His care for them. God loves those things that are of infinite worth and value. And therefore, God is a great example for us because we ought to love the Son of God above all things. And we ought to love His glory. And we ought to love His name. And we ought to love His sovereignty and His freedom. And we ought to love His reputation. And we ought to love the giving of His Son to vindicate His holiness. And we ought to love His free grace by which He chose a people for Himself and, and by which He rejoices over them to do them good. These ought to be the passions of our heart so that we would be God-like. Do you remember the argument, how it went? That if we just saw God in His glory, we would be transformed from one degree of glory into another, into His likeness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 The whole point behind this series is to beget God-like people. And the assumption is that if we see God in His excellency and His worth, manifest in what He loves and what He delights in, we'll be changed. Because you become like what you admire and what you stare at long enough. Today, the series takes a shift. We haven't looked much at the response of man in this series. Because we've wanted to put first things first. And I'm convinced with all my heart that God comes first. That the centrality of God in his own affections becomes comes first before man enters the picture. And I have put it this way for seven weeks because I know that if we don't put God first, if we don't see that God's value is the driving force in the gospel, then when we hear the gospel, we will put ourselves square at the center we will think that our value and not his value is the driving force of the gospel. We will trace the gospel back to God's delight in us instead of tracing it back to his grace, which makes a way for us to delight in him. It's happening all around us. It has happened for 200 years. And I don't want it to happen. The gospel is the good news that God is the all-satisfying source of our needs. The gospel is the good news that even though God does not need us and is estranged from us because of our God-belittling sins, nevertheless, he has made a way for us sinners, though we be, to drink at the river of his delights. That's the gospel. God is at the center of the gospel. Grace is at the center of the gospel. What would you define grace as? Here's my definition of grace. 
based on what we've seen in these past seven weeks. Grace is the will of God to magnify the worth of God by enabling sinners to delight in God without compromising the glory of God. Who's at the center of that definition? Let me say it again. Grace, the grace of God, is the will, the passion, the joy of God to magnify the worth of God by enabling sinners to delight in God without even compromising one whit the glory and the holiness of God. That's grace. And grace vanishes if man goes to the center of the gospel. And saints, brothers and sisters, the great saints of the church have always relished the centrality of God in the gospel. Just read the biographies of the saints. They delight to say with Paul, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. They, they love to boast only in the Lord. They love to say that God is the beginning and the middle and the end in this affair of salvation. They love to say, I was chosen for the glory of God's grace. I was called out of darkness into light to magnify the wonders of God. I was justified by a crucified Christ who died to to vindicate the glory of God's holiness. I will one day be swallowed up by life to the praise of His glory. That's the way the saints talk. God is at the center of their lives. God is at the center of their gospel. God is at the center of their joy. God is at the center of everything for the saints of God. For seven weeks, we've tried to make plain that God is central in his own affections and that he should be central in ours. And now we're ready, I hope, to talk about the human response and God's response to that response in delight. What kind of response will God call for given who he is, which will accomplish two things. What kind of response will be good news for sinners and a glory to God? It must be both. The gospel does have a demand in it. You would agree with that, don't you? There is a call for response in the gospel. So that response must be good news or the gospel isn't going to be good news. If it's just another weight on my back, it isn't gospel. It must be good news if he's going to tell me that I have to do something. And if the gospel is God-centered, then that response that I give must be something that magnifies God and not me. Now, what kind of response will God call for to accomplish those two things? That's what our text is all about. Let's go to Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11, and read it together. God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. 
in those who hope in his steadfast love. Let's look at verse 11 first and see why God takes pleasure in fear and hope. And then look at verse 10 to see why he does not take pleasure in horses and legs. Let me ask you a question. Does it strike you at all as strange that we would be told to fear and hope in the same God at the same time? It's usually the other way around, isn't it? If I'm afraid of you, I look somewhere else and say, help me. I'm afraid of that person. I need help. Protect me from that person. You don't, you don't, when you're afraid of somebody, hope in that person. It seems like a kind of push and pull here. What, What does this mean? What are we to make of this verse 11, that we are to fear this God and hope in this God? Here's what I think the writer wants us to do. I think he means that the experience of hope should penetrate and transform the experience of fear. And the experience of fear should uh, penetrate and transform the experience of hope. Suppose you are on an expedition to Greenland, northern Greenland. And it's the dead of winter, and you are going to explore unknown glaciers. And you have a party of people with you, and it is bitter cold. And it is crystal clear at first, and then the storms begin to gather. And just as you come up to a massive cliff that seems to fall away a mile below, and you look out over endless terrain of ice and snow and mountains, the storm breaks. And it is so cold. And the wind is so strong, it threatens to freeze you and push you over the cliff. And you stagger around for just a few minutes until you find a, a, a covert, a, a, an opening in the side of a, an ice wall. And you hide in there and, and you're safe from the storm. And you watch it spend itself out across this vast terrain of mountainous ice. Now, let's analyze what's going on in your heart here. At first, the storm broke on you with its immense power, and you were afraid. Your life was threatened. That was a part of your fear. And then, all of a sudden, you got hope that you would be safe because you hid in this opening, and there was hope penetrating into your fear. Now, the fear did not totally vanish. Elements of it remained. The awe at this storm remained. The wonder, the trembling, the thought and the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a power again. You would never want to be found an adversary with such a force as was in that storm. All of that's left while you're safe in the rock. The fear of God is what is left when we find hope in God. God's the same as this storm, isn't he? Look at verses 16 and 17. This is where I got the idea of an icy analogy. 
He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He casts forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? The cold of God. The cold of God is a terrifying thing. And then look at verses 4 and 5. This power of God in nature is carried on. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. In other words, the greatness of God is greater than the universe of stars. The power of God is more powerful than any blast of an Arctic storm. And yet, he cups his hands around his people. Do you see that in verses 2 and 3? He... he uh, has mercy on the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds right next to the star power of God. The fear of God is what's left of the storm when you have found a safe place in the hope of God. You say in that covert, this is amazing. This is terrible. This is an awesome storm. When you're protected by God and you say, whoa, what a terrible thing to fall into the hands of such a God. What a terrible thing to be the adversary of such power. Better to be thrown into the depths of the sea with a big millstone tied around your neck than to be found against such a God. What a wonderful thing and a wonderful privilege to know the favor of God in the midst of his mighty and glorious power. So I think we get an idea. How is it that we hope and fear at the same time in the same God? The, the, the hope that we have in God penetrates and, and takes the life-threatening part out of fear, but leaves the trembling awe and wonder. And the fear of God penetrates into our hope and strips it of triviality. Slapstick worship. There is a reason behind why we worship the way we do at Bethlehem. And it's very simply because God is God. And it's not inappropriate one hour a week to go on your face in awe before the holiness of God. There are other dimensions to Christianity that are sweet and warm and tender and family-like. One hour is not too much to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so I beseech you, to train your children as you sit here in reverence and devotion. By just the way you sit, the way you sing, the way you listen, the way you prepare. Why does God delight in fear and hope? That's what the verse says. He delights in those who fear Him and has pleasure 
in those who hope in his love. Why? Surely the reason now is that our fear highlights his power and our hope highlights his grace. And God is so passionately in love with the demonstration of his power and his grace that wherever it is highlighted, he rejoices. This is just what you would have expected, I hope, having heard these seven messages that given who God is, this is what he would delight in in our hearts. God will never give up the glory of being the fountain at which we drink. God will never surrender the honor of being the source of our delights. God will never abdicate the throne of sovereign grace. God has pleasure in those who hope in his love because when you hope in his love, you magnify his resources. When you say, you are my only hope, my rock, my refuge, God is lifted up. His riches are magnified. You remember the question I asked just a moment ago? What kind of response could God demand from us that would accomplish these two great things? Good news for sinners and glory to God. Let's take those one at a time. We have our answer now. The answer is hope in God and in his mercy. This is the best news for sinners. Put yourself back on the ice face, only you didn't make it to the covert this time. You're not saved. You're on, you got blown over. Only you landed on a ledge about ten feet down, and you are caught like this against the ice face. And you're about to lose your balance. Your fingernails are digging in as best they could, but it's giving way. Your cheek is right against the ice. You can't even inhale all the way, lest your balance tips and you fall to your death. That's the way every unbeliever is in this world, whether they know it or not. And God comes up behind them in his spirit and says, I will hold you. I will catch you. I will take you into my arms. And your heart begins to leap up. And then he says, but there's a condition you have to meet. And your heart absolutely sinks. And you say, can't he see? I can't lift a finger for him. My fingernails are in the ice. I can't even talk. I can't open my mouth. What does he mean I have to meet a condition for him? I've got nothing I can do for God. Nothing. I'm a goner. And then he says, hope in my love. Just hope in me. And you give way into God. So I do think we have found the command for a response that is good news. Does this add burden to your heart to say that you must hope in God? Does a thirsty person consider it a burden to say, enjoy this water? Do I carry a burden in my heart when somebody says, eat this chocolate sundae? When God says, hope in my love, that's no burden. But not only is it good news to sinners, it's a glory to God, isn't it? What does it say about God? What does it show the world about God when you walk in the hope of God? It says God is strong and I'm weak. It says God is rich and I'm poor. It says God is full and I'm empty. 
It says God is the doctor and I'm a patient. It says God is a thirsty or a, an overflowing spring and I'm a thirsty deer. It says God is a good and strong and loving shepherd and I'm a lost and hopeless sheep caught on the cliff. What does that do to God? It glorifies God. It lifts Him up. It shows His wealth, His riches, His power, His grace. And He loves His reputation. He loves His glory. And when you kick in to the glory of God by hoping in Him, all omnipotence is on your side. He delights in you with all His heart and all His soul and all His strength. The beauty of the gospel this morning And I hope you see it. The beauty of the gospel is that in one little command, sinners are saved and God is glorified. The passions of the Almighty are consummated. And history reaches its goal. Do you see the glory of the gospel this morning? Let's go to verse verse 10 and just wrap it up real quick. Why? Why does God not have pleasure in the strength of the horse and not delight in the legs of man? What's he got against horses? I mean, he made horses. He made squid, giant squid to sport in the ocean. What's he got against horses? Listen to these words from from God to Job. Do you give the horse his, his might? Do you clothe his neck with strength? Do you make him leap like the locust? He paws in the valley and exults in strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. I think God is perfectly delighted in horses and gives them all their strength and their neighing and loves it when they kick up their heels in the wilderness. Well, what does this verse mean? You know what this verse means. I asked my sons at breakfast yesterday, what's wrong with horses? And they got it just like that. And, of course, you got it too, right? What are horses for in that culture? Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. What's wrong with horses? People hope in horses. God does not take pleasure in missiles or makeup. God does not take pleasure in tanks or tans. God does not take pleasure in bombs or bodybuilding. He does not take pleasure in corporate efficiency. Balanced budgets, welfare systems, new vaccines, education, eloquence, artistic excellence, legal processes, or anything else which becomes a treasure 
in which we trust and hope and an achievement in which we boast. The Lord does not take pleasure in the strength of the horse or in the legs of a man. So I close by urging you with all my heart this morning, turn away from human reliances. Turn away from putting your hope on your money, your retirement plan, your health, your job, your family, your looks, your strength. Put away all such hopes and pin your hope on the one thing that will be there when the avalanche starts, God's mercy and love. Because in doing that, you will be saved and God gets the glory. Let's stand and thank the Lord together. Oh God in heaven, I just praise you for the beauty of the gospel. I glorify your name that you have conceived of a redemptive history in which we find complete satisfaction through hoping in you and you find ultimate glorification in being trusted by us. What a solution, God. What a glorious marriage of passions. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here right now who's trusting in themselves, their morality, their good works, their money, their strength, their family, their health, their job, anything, Lord, give them no rest this afternoon. Give them no rest until they make the shift and put their hope wholly in you so that everything else becomes an expression of trust rather than a competition of trust. Be pleased, O God, to glorify your name in our church and in our ministry this week. Through Christ we pray. Amen.